The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. That, that gets to say whether something is right or wrong. When faced with something, how do we know whether that something is right or that something is wrong? Kids, sorry. <laughs> Kids, you can head on back there. Your leaders are waiting. And that is right. And that is right. <laughs> this is why we have great volunteers who keep me on track. Thank you, Miss Judy. So how do, how do we know whether something is right or something is wrong? You know, we are sitting in church time, and this time is typically devoted to things of the church, so you might be thinking that we are going to someplace deeply theological with this question. Hold on, we will get there. Just follow this path with me for a little while, though. For all the single folks in here that are living on your own, you are the one who gets that authority to say whether something in your household is right or it is wrong. It is your domain, and the buck stops here. If you are living in that season of life, don't hope for the next season and miss the joy of the season that you are currently living in. For instance... If you decide that produce belongs on the counter and not in the pantry or not in the fridge, you're the one who gets to make that decision, and it's your right to do so. You get to decide where you place the bananas before they end up in the freezer, hoping someday to make banana bread out of those ripe bananas now. If you want the house to be 68 in the summer and 74 in the winter, you get that decision. Nobody is going to get in the way of you making that decision. It is your ultimate control over that thermostat. You get to control the temperature of the room you are in, and subsequently, you also get to control the changes of your electric bill. Do you have a fan or noise machine on whenever you sleep? That is your option. Do you prefer white noise? Do you prefer brown noise? It is a thing. City noise, or perhaps no noise at all. You are the DJ of the night. Does a lazy boy recliner belong in the living room? You can decide the level of comfort you want versus the level of beauty in the living room. Overstuffed, understuffed, or incredibly uncomfortable. It all rests in your hands. If you decide you want 20 pillows on the bed that you throw off each night and you put back on each morning, that is your prerogative. Go for it. Do your towels, do they go in as twofold or threefolds? <laughs> this is a big decision. It'll have an effect on how much vertical or horizontal space that your closet holds. Do socks get folded? Do socks get rolled? Do socks get thrown into the never-ending sock basket? All of these questions rest in your deciding if they are right 
where they are wrong decisions. You have the ability and the authority to make these changes. For everyone else, do you remember what that was like? For the single people in the room, I want you to know marriage is awesome. I have loved being married to my bride for almost 15 years. Singleness, though, does have some advantages at times. When you get married, you will find out that your spouse does a lot of things wrong. Don't say amen. Don't do it. Of course, I'm not talking about my spouse, but I've heard some others say things to me that their spouse at times can do things incorrectly. You find out that he or she leaves apples on the counter. They do this so that they're warm and disgusting because they don't like the feeling of cold apples on their teeth. You find out their preferred temperature in the house is either a freezer or a sauna. You find out that your spouse thinks that lazy boy recliners in the living room are hideous, and they prefer furniture that is uncomfortable, but it looks so nice. Are you ready for the greatest debate of all? Which way does the toilet paper go back on the roll? There have no doubt, no doubt been great discussions on which way is right. In fact, there's an entire Wikipedia article devoted to which way does the toilet paper go. There is the under, there is the over, and the next slide, the criminally insane. <laughs> which way is right? Statistics show, and first of all, just pause, I love that there are statistics for which way the toilet paper goes. Statistics show that 80% of you are overs, 20% are unders, and if you put the roll on top, then you probably couldn't figure out how to take the survey, and therefore you are not counted. <laughs> Does a majority, though, automatically make the overs correct? Well, absolutely not. A majority doesn't get to define what is right or what is wrong because they often have the louder or larger voice. As an aside, they don't forget this because, just one side, because one side is louder or larger, it doesn't mean that they or you are correct. Well, then who gets to determine the correct way? Who has the official statement on toilet paper? Can we call up Dr. Sharman, Mr. Quilted Northern, or Queen Cottonelle? Interesting enough, the toilet paper debate has been settled. It was settled because in 2015, a writer with way too much time on their hands went back and found the original patent dated to 1891, which clearly shows the correct way. The writer went back to the original source and found the evidence. If you can put the next slide up for me, Kyle. Here is the original patent. It is overs. All of you as overs are correct. This is the way that toilet paper was originally designed to be used. Some of you are just naturally contrarians. So because you see this now, you say, I'm definitely moving to the over camp because that is not 
how I want to live my life. And you can have discussions with those who you live with. So once we see what the, the patent says, we then get the ability to decide whether we follow the evidence or not. The original source has proclaimed the correct way, and we either accept it or we reject it. In the most awkward transition I have ever done, let us look to our text of 1 Timothy number 2. I was joking, you missed it. That's okay. We look at this text, and we will see a tremendous theological truth which describes our God. I'm going to read this text, and then I will pray, and then we will walk through this text slowly. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, says this. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed, a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Let's pray. Father, I ask, Lord, that you would illuminate your word to us. Father, through the power of your spirit, that the words of text, Father, your words, God, would be used in these moments to pierce our hearts. Father, we ask that you would continually take our hearts of stone and mold and shape them, Father, into hearts of flesh. Would you use our time together, Father, to bring glory to yourself. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Our text begins with three simple letters, four. It begins with this four. It's not a stand-alone text, but it is directly connected to the verses that precede it. Justin preached last week regarding our responsibility to be in prayer for all people, verses one through four. This prayer for all comes from the God with our text, who is one. In fact, if you just look at this contrast of verses one through seven, we have a lot of alls and we have a lot of ones. What does it mean here in verse five that for there is one God? What does it mean for God to be one, for there to be one God? Well, first, God is himself one. We serve a God that we would describe as triune. This means that our God is three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit all make up our God. The Trinity is a concept that we find from the very beginning of Scripture until the very end. We see at creation in the world in Genesis 1 and 2 that in this text, God has created man in our plural image. We see in the complementary text of John chapter 1 that Christ was in the beginning with God. You see, our God is three in one. Trinity is a very difficult concept to understand. In fact, I don't think we will ever be able to fully understand what it means for God to be three in one until we reach heaven and are fully enlightened. We have tried to use many different analogies, but all of these analogies at some point fail. There's eggs, 
apples, trees, water. These are kind of our go-to analogies for what is the Trinity. How is it that is three in one? And all of these analogies, whenever you work through them, at some point, they fail. Not only is God one, but there is also only one God. This can be seen as a controversial statement in our society. To say that there is only one God is to also say that all other gods are not true. Buddha, Shiva, Muhammad, Zenu, Joseph Smith, and even the great actor Tom Cruise. All of these are not gods. They were all created physically or immaterially. God is not created. He has always been and will always be. There is no person or thing higher than him that has created him. Also, you are not a God. This seems like a simple statement, but you are unfortunately more likely to be placed upon the throne of God more than anybody else that I just mentioned. Just as shocking as the understanding that the earth is not the center of the universe, so also is the shocking news that you are not at the center of the universe. Everything was not created to please you. Everything is not for your enjoyment alone. Everyone else is not on this earth to glorify and to honor you. You are not a master to be served. Also, I'm not sure if you know this or not, so I will say it gently. You might be wrong at times. I know it's such a bummer to hear those words. We are not omnipotent. We are not omniscient like our God is. Therefore, you are guaranteed to be wrong at times. If you are married, maybe you were reminded of this fact just this morning or possibly with this like elbow that you just got. It's from our understanding of there being only one God that all of our theology rests. We can only truly understand his other attributes when we first understand that he alone is God. And there truly is none other like him. To him alone belongs all glory, all honor, and praise. The evidence that there is a God is quite overwhelming. In fact, the evidence is so overwhelming that our Bible never even makes an argument for there being a God. There's automatically an assumption within Scripture that there is a God. If you look at Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God. Genesis 1.1 doesn't present us evidence for God, but it instead immediately begins to describe him. It doesn't need to convince you that there is a God. Genesis 1.1 has an assumption built right into it, and it's a correct assumption. God exists. There is one God. My hope is that you not only understand this fact, but that it is from this fact that your life is centered. You know, growing up, I had a fantastic toy, Spirograph. Walking in here, some of you probably saw Spirograph, and it possibly brought back 
some childhood memories for you. This was one of my, my favorite, I'll call it a toy. I think it was just parent distraction. It was, hey, we're tired of you. Go play some Spirograph. Uh, with Spirograph, if you are unfamiliar with it, you have really three elements. You have your device that you write with, in this case, a marker. You have your outside ring, and you have a number of shapes of inside rings. You see, this inside ring has many holes inside of it. And what you do is you place the inside ring inside the outside ring, and they kind of have these little notches like a wheel. Then you place your pen in one of these holes, and you kind of go around. And, and what happens is you get to create masterpieces like my daughter did. These are her masterpieces that, that she created yesterday with the joy of Spirograph. You know, where I place that marker, though, on those holes, it determines so many things. It's going to determine the outcome of what I'm actually drawing. If the, micro, if the marker is slightly changed to a different position, the design it makes will look totally different. Spirograph is based upon one concept, and that's the concept of this large outer ring must remain constant. This ring cannot change position. The smaller ring goes inside the predetermined path. When this outer ring is not held firmly, when it moves and it is not solid, the drawing will end up looking off. You don't have the perfect designs. You don't have as it was intended to look. It's important that we, as believers, have the center of our lives positioned correctly so that the beautiful designs that we create will be centered around the God who has created us. I hope that our lives are beautiful tapestries that point back to the creator as the center, being in the correct place held firmly. The text continues here in verse 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. This should cause us to ask two questions. First, what is a mediator? And second, why was a mediator needed? A mediator is a, a go-between. A mediator is brought in when there is conflict, an agreement is needed. Uh, a few years ago, my wife and I were hit with the lovely ice storm that cruised through San Antonio. Uh, it shut our city down. We were part of the rolling blackouts to where we would experience about five minutes of power about every hour or so. And during those five minutes, it was a mad rush to try and do things. It was chaos for five minutes, and then the power would be out. What this ended up doing is it caused one of the pipes in our kitchen to burst, and it left us with quite a mess. We called our insurance company, and they sent out an adjuster, and the adjuster's role was to evaluate the damage that this burst pipe had caused, and after his assessment, the insurance company said that we would be able to replace everything for $2,000. I'm not sure if you have done any kitchen renovations recently, 
but $2,000 in today's dollars will get you a single cabinet door. We had to replace all of our lower cabinets, all of our flooring, and all of our sheetrock. So with this, what we ended up doing was hiring a private insurance adjuster to fight for us. Our adjuster and their adjuster were unable in their discussions to reach an agreement. So what they do is they bring in a mediator. This mediator held both sides, observed the conflict, and made a ruling that both parties would agree to. The mediator's sole purpose is to resolve conflict. Well, what would be the conflict between God and men that requires a mediator? You know, there are many tools that people use when presenting the gospel. Some are very cheesy, and honestly, they frustrate me. Others aren't nearly as bad. One that I think hits this text so incredibly well is the bridge diagram. With the bridge diagram, there are two large cliffs. And on one side is God, and on the other side is man, or you. There's a large chasm between these two. This chasm is sin. It is what separates us from our holy and perfect God. This is a conflict in need of a mediator. Well, who does our text say that mediator is? The man, Christ Jesus. How is Christ described in this text? It's described simply as a man. Now, Jesus came to this earth as a man. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. He went to the cross on our behalf and took our sin upon his shoulders. A perfect sacrifice was needed, and we were unable. Christ is 100% God and 100% man. Only he would be able to span the gap and reach into both worlds. He has created a bridge between us and God. There is only one that can be our mediator, yet we constantly try and fill the gap of sin on our own with different mediators. In fact, I think if we were honest with ourselves, we should probably take a pencil or a pen we should probably cross out the, the ending of the text of verse 5 after the comma. We should probably write our own names in there. It, it should probably read, for there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, me. Because after we look at it, this is often how we behave. What we believe actually determines how we behave. You believe that the chair you are currently sitting in will hold you. Therefore, whenever you sat down in it, you showed your belief through your behavior. Our beliefs determine our behaviors, and oftentimes we can see our beliefs by our behaviors. What does your behavior show about your belief and who the mediator between God and man is? You know, maybe you try and fill the gap of sin with good works. After all, you aren't that bad of a person. 
In fact, in the drive through line at the coffee shop, you even picked up the order for the person behind you. Surely, that fills the gap. No, it doesn't. You know, maybe you try and, and fill the gap with binoculars. I love binoculars. Binoculars can make that gap appear so small. In fact, sometimes if I place the binoculars just right, I don't even see the gap. This is what I fear many of us do. I can even avoid looking at that gap. I can avoid it by acting like all I need to do is shift my focus. I can often self-medicate this gap through alcohol, through drugs, through pharmaceuticals. And I can no longer care or see the gap. I turn my binoculars into self-medication. I can avoid thinking about that gap, thinking that it even exists by keeping my mind so busy that it isn't even a concern. My binoculars turn into my 40, 50, 80-hour work week. I do this to stop looking, to stop thinking about the sin problem that I have. I'm so busy, I don't even see or think about the great chasm between me and God. This gap can be filled with a lot of bad things to try and to reach God on that other side. However, we can also fill the gap with a lot of things that are good, but they don't reach all the way. For instance, church. The church is good, and sometimes it's even great. However, it is a poor mediator. The church is not able to pay the penalty of sin. In fact, here at Stonehook, we're trying to even remove that view of the church as a mediator between you and God. Take what we just participated in, the act of communion. We have moved the communion tables to a placement that's among the people. There's nothing between you and the elements. This is to signify that you are, in not, you are not in need of a mediator between you and Christ. Christ is our mediator. Along with that, we live today in a celebrity pastor world. I want you all to know that I love our lead pastor, Justin. He's not here today, but even if he were, I would have no problem saying this, and he would be in complete agreement. He is a terrible substitute for a mediator. He's unable to solve the sin problem between you and God. His preaching is unable to save you. His role as the primary preacher here at Stone Oak is to lift high the name of Jesus. Numbers chapter 21 is one of my favorite texts in the Bible. Uh, within this, there is a story of Moses. In fact, it's why if you look at any ambulance or most hospital signs, you see an image of a snake wrapped around a pole. The people were being bitten and dying by snakes. And God tells Moses to grab a snake and to wrap it around a pole, a bronze serpent. Anyone who looked at that pole would live. This is what Justin gets to do most Sundays. 
He gets to hold high the pole of Christ so that those who look on it may live. This is my joy today, is to hold high the pole of Christ so that you may look upon that beautiful Savior and be saved. You know, we are constantly looking for a mediator when the text clearly shows us that God has already provided a mediator. The man, Christ Jesus, is our mediator. Only he was able to span the gap between us and God, and he did this through what we have just remembered and celebrated in communion. Christ came to the earth, and he lived a perfect, sinless life. You see, sin must be covered. The covering of sin is only accomplished through blood. However, is not just any blood that covers sin, but spotless, pure, and perfect blood. The God-man of Christ was the only one who could accomplish this on our behalf. And he did. He came. He lived a perfect life, died a gruesome death, taking all of my sin, all of your sin and shame, and placed it upon the cross. And he arose again in victory. I want you to hear me clearly. Christ is the mediator between you and God. Do you know this? Do you live this? Perhaps you're in here and you're tired of trying to get God to span that gap through your own merits, through your own works, through the works of your parents through the works of your coworkers, through the works of your pastor or even your church. I promise you, all of these will fail you and will come up short. This morning, I implore you to trust in the mediator who has taken on the sin of the world for your salvation. The next verse, verse 6, says, who gave himself as a ransom. A ransom is a, a payment for the release of someone. If you listen to any true crime podcasts or you binge the Netflix documentaries that are out there, you probably have a good idea of what ransoms are. There is some similarity. However, Christ came and purchased what was already his. This, in fact, reminds me of the Old Testament book of Hosea. The, the prophet Hosea, it's a beautiful story of redemption. God tells this man, Hosea, to go and marry a prostitute. He does so. She, the, the spouse, then goes back to her life of prostitution, and Hosea is then tasked with buying her back. He purchases his wife, what is already his. You are made in the image of God, and you belong to him. However, Sin is a problem, and it must be paid. Christ makes that payment willingly on the cross. God buys back what is already his. And who does he do this for? Well, the text here, verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The text says that he does this for all. There are many controversies regarding who these all 
actually are. Who would know that three small letters could bring up so much controversy? I'm not going to jump into the waters here because I don't want to miss the main point by looking at a subpoint of this text. And it can be often distracting and cause us to, to end up missing the, the point of this text. But I will say this. Some see all, meaning everyone, everywhere. This is a heresy called universalism. This belief holds that ultimately all people everywhere will enter into heaven. Others see this all as all that will be saved. Some see this as available for all. And there are others that see this as all types in comparison to only for the Jews. I would fall into that last camp. However, I will say this. Only God knows whether all includes you or does not include you. Therefore, I am going to make an assumption that all includes you here right now. Christ has given himself as a ransom for you. He has paid the penalty for sin. This all occurs, as the text says, at the perfect timing of God. Even now, if you feel the Spirit of God speaking to you regarding your salvation, we can rest in our sovereign God who is in control of all things, including timing. Let's end our time this morning by looking at verse 7. Verse 7 says this, for, I, or for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul here has a special calling upon his life to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. He gives us even in this a, can I be honest with you moment here? Is he lying to us previously? Well, no, but it's just as if I said, hey, can I be honest for a second? I wasn't lying to you before, but it's an emphasis point. Paul's purpose here is given. It was to preach and teach to a non-Jewish audience. This is what God had in store for Paul. I want you to know that this is also what God has in store for you. This text it begins very theologically heavy, yet it ends with a personal commissioning of Paul. I believe that this commissioning of Paul is the same commissioning that you and I experience today. You are called to teach the gospel that you have come to know and to love. Paul had a specific people in mind that he was called to. Who are you specifically called to? Where has God uniquely placed you? Because he hasn't placed me there. He hasn't placed those around you there. But he has uniquely placed you there. You know, last week we got to celebrate what we called Send Off Sunday. If you were with us last week, we sent a couple from our church to New Braunfels, uh, where he would step on in a pastoral role to proclaim the gospel there. And we also sent off another couple, as well as a gaggle of people, to the northwest side of San Antonio to start a new work there, to start a new church there. This is where they, specifically, have been called by God. Again, I would ask, where has God uniquely placed you? 
What arenas are you currently rubbing shoulders with? Possibly work, school, friends. I want you to know that the message of the gospel is not for you alone. This message of the gospel has been given to you to proclaim to others. There is one God. There is one mediator. And that message should be proclaimed to all people. 